has the status of an industrial revolution the way that uh, the steam engine had in the first industrial revolution or electricity in the second, uh, computers in the third and robotics AI in the fourth. We're all reading the coverage, aren't we, which says that this could be the end of the world or the end of humanity um, or perhaps, you know, take all our jobs. That was Sir Christopher Pisiridis, LSE Professor of Economics and Nobel Prize winner, and Charlie Beckett, LSE Media Professor and Director of Polis, LSE's journalism think tank. We'll hear more from Charlie later. Chris's work focuses on the economics of unemployment, and over the last several years he has turned his attention to employment in the age of artificial intelligence. If you've used generative AI tools such as ChatGPT, Google Bard, or MidJourney, which create text, images, or other media in response to prompts by the user, questions about your own future work prospects may have crossed your mind. Welcome to LSEIQ the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. I'm Maya Narat from the IQ team, where we work with academics to bring you their latest research and ideas. In this episode, I ask, is AI coming for our jobs? I'll hear about how AI is being implemented in courts and the first robot judges in China. I'll talk to experts about how journalism and other professional fields will be affected by the AI revolution and the role of governments and businesses in mitigating the risks. Historically, other technological advancements have led to the creation of new jobs such as the boom in manufacturing that resulted from electrification. Will this be the case with artificial intelligence? I asked Chris Pisaridis. The fear with AI is that it's going to go the other way. Employment will go down because machinery will be working on its own. But the transformations that are taking place are arguably of that scale, in that we have to learn new skills, there will be new types of jobs, there will be mainly service jobs because manufacturing can be automated more easily. How might the AI revolution impact different professions? I think AI will take over uh, jobs, and robotics actually, will take take over jobs that can be programmed to ones that uh, follow a certain uh, routine, ones that are based on the analysis of uh, data that we already have. All our information is going to come from uh, AI, you know, ChatGPT, for example, is already being put into practice as a way of generating information the way that Google was and still is, that's going to be the main impact. And that's why I said I'm optimistic, because those jobs are not particularly satisfying jobs. You know, doing the manual work that robots are doing in warehousing or on um, in actual manufacture, you know, production lines, those have been uh, taken over. But it's not going to take over uh, uh, most of the jobs in the service sector that involve personal contact. Uh, jobs that uh, require creativity, those will remain in human hands. Chris is optimistic about the impact of AI on the labor market and recently suggested that increasing productivity might even enable the adoption of the four-day workweek. He highlights the benefits of AI adoption across various industries and envisions the possibility of robotics and AI working together with people. Teaching, of course, we use AI a lot. We might start preparing our lecture notes using ChatGPT or other sources from the internet. Uh, and of course, the medical profession already helping a lot in diagnosis and various tests that have been done. It's not going to help uh, the poor nurses, the poor underpaid nurses, <laughs> because there you need 
the human touch for care and and uh, attention to the special needs of, of every patient. And the last thing you want to do is to send a robot to do that for you. I don't see the machinery taking over in a big way in restaurants, for example. It's people who are social animals. If we go somewhere for entertainment, we'd like to have a sort of friendly, warm, uh, welcome from someone and be offered a professional human service rather than uh, trying to figure out how to work uh, the, the machinery or, or a robot to get what we want. I think that will always remain. So we're not likely to see AI front-of-house stuff anytime soon, but what about professions where functions traditionally taken on by junior staff could be performed by AI? I think that in the legal fields, what is becoming increasingly evident is that the use of AI is progressively uh, replacing some of the repetitive functions that were performed, for example, by trainee lawyers or very junior lawyers. This is Dr. Julia Gentile, formerly at LSE Law School and now at the University of Essex. Julia's recent projects focus on the digitization of courts. These were tasks that were more repetitive, not necessarily requiring, one can say, the experience of a well-navigated lawyer, and therefore were given, of course, to more junior professionals. And this is where we see that AI is also becoming more um, relevant precisely because of the nature of the task and their um, tendency to be uh, automated. I would say there is an increasing concern among, for example, law students to whom uh, I teach about AI and AI regulation about their future as well, about their own career. But depending on how companies and law firms decide to embed AI, in a way, uh, trainees may also perhaps uh, be facilitated in their um, tasks. So it depends on um, whether the technology will have a more human-centric approach or rather a more business-oriented uh, one. And in the second case, inevitably, um, I think that the working conditions of uh, future professionals will be affected and may become harsher for job seekers to find employment in the future. How are AI tools already being used in the legal profession and in courts? So starting from the legal profession, um, AI uh, is used, for example, to draft contracts. We also have AI used in hearings, for example, Compass being this a tool used in several states in the United States that helps judges to make decisions on sentencing based on the degree of recidivism of uh, the parties involved, of the parties that have been charged with some criminal counts. So routine legal tasks are already being done by AI, but what about the more weighty judgments of the courtroom? Is there a not-too-distant future when a robo-judge hears a case? to think about these circumstances as um, if, for example, uh, humans decided to be judged by an entity that does not belong to the human race, <laughs> right? Now, of course, this would be the extreme case where the judge is completely, uh, entirely replaced by artificial intelligence. And this might be, well, the future. There is no indication that this might not happen. In this very uh, historical moment, we have AI judges in specific cases, for example, in China, where um, 
relatively simple claims are decided through algorithms. But these are small claims, according to Chinese researchers, also quite, one can say, straightforward cases. Is it possible and even desirable to remove the emotional baggage and biases of judges by using AI systems instead? If the judge, for example, has a certain preference, that being political or simply uh, personal towards uh, certain parties or towards certain arguments, towards certain interpretations of the law, this is perceived as negative, of course. And in this sense, AI is believed, is deemed to be uh, able to address this bias <laughs> that judges may have by providing more reliable, more mathematical input in the courtroom. The reality is that um, AI systems are in themselves biased. And this is because AI relies on data. And inevitably, the data we currently have reflects pre-existing biases. So I think that the question of whether we should get rid of the, one could say, the emotional baggage of, of judges, it's very complex and in any event, we should mention the fact that there are several rules already existing in uh, different states, in different jurisdictions, that allow to measure uh, and assess whether judges have been independent and impartial. And therefore, my take on this question would be that also any form of AI that will be likely to be introduced in the courtroom should comply with these requirements that are currently applied to human judges. Julia points out that robo-judges would not be wholly impartial. They would be as biased as the data their algorithms are trained on. And how are people likely to react when their case, and sometimes even their future, will be decided by an AI judge? You might not incentivize individuals to access courts at all, knowing that there will be a robot <laughs> deciding their case. Legal reasoning is uh, about creativity, and a robot judge might not necessarily provide creativity and might not provide, even more importantly, also interpretations of the law that are based on equity, on values that go beyond the very uh, limited wording of the law, but that consider values that are human in their nature, such as, for example, uh, fairness, um, equality. You're listening to LSEIQ. In this episode, I'm exploring whether AI will take over our jobs. We'll hear more from Julia Gentile later. I also spoke with Professor Charlie Beckett, who leads the Polis Journalism AI Project, a global initiative that aims to empower news organizations to use artificial intelligence in a responsible way that boosts independent journalism. I asked Charlie why AI is such a hot topic right now. In this last period of six, nine months, with the release of these uh, large language model generative AI like ChatGPT um, and DALI and Midjourney, uh, there's been this yeah, explosion of interest. It's the fact that you, me, anyone can go on that site and put a prompt in, you know, can ask it something simple or facetious or complicated and you'll get a response. Anyone can go on these uh, picture generation sites and create the most fantastic uh, images. We've heard so much about what AI is and what it's capable of. Um, is this technology something we should be worried about? 
This is a remarkable live experiment. One of the reasons why the generative AI has happened so quickly is basically because Microsoft and Google are in a big corporate race to see who can exploit it the best, for example, around search. And there's going to be, you know, there's theoretically a big impact on their business models and, uh, you know, who controls tech power in the world. And I think the impacts are going to be felt even or just as acutely in other fields, both for good and for bad, in places like health in terms of diagnosis, for example. Um, I think one of the determining factors is going to be, you know, we've got this kind of wild west at the moment where they're releasing endless algorithms. And, you know, one of the tech leaders even said we should wait and see when it starts doing bad things so we can then correct it, which is a interesting theory about public safety. So I think one of the key things is going to be the way that um, the companies themselves introduce more guardrails, uh, introduce one hopes more transparency. Well, I, I wouldn't wait too long for that. Um, but also, of course, how authorities who are already starting to think about how they might intervene in terms of you know, regulation and so on. Um, so that's going to be important. So regulation is going to be crucial, but will also take time. The new technologies are developing so fast that it's hard to imagine policymaking being able to keep up. I asked Charlie whether we should put the brake on AI while we still can, or celebrate the innovation. This stuff is not going back in the box. Um, there's no way that's going to happen. And I don't think it should do. Uh, but we have identified for some years, you know, ethical concerns, real practical concerns, you know, over facial recognition, recruitment and so on. Uh, and there are real dangers around any of these technologies. I'm not sure that talking about, you know, the end of the human race is a very helpful way to frame it. I think that actually plays into some of the tech company hype. This stuff is incredible. This is a world changing. Yes, it might end the world. <laughs> yeah, I think it slightly plays into that 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 sort of mega hype, which of course, you know, in any list of probabilities, yes, there's always going to be that. But uh, as I say, yes, I think it can frame the debate in a in a way that distracts from the real practical here and now issues that we need to grapple with. Thinking about the practical use of AI for journalists. Um what are the challenges they face that AI can help to solve? Resources, resources, resources. There's very few newsrooms that have got bigger uh, in the years. What they have done is they're creating much more content than before. They're, or they're reaching more people than ever before. You know, the Guardian newspaper in the UK, for example, I don't know, used to have a circulation of 300,000, something like that. It's now got a global audience of, again, I'm not quite sure, but it's 40, 50 million people. So to generate that kind of to operate at that kind of volume, and of course that rapidity of constantly updating, constantly uh, trying to come up with news stories, constantly engaging with your audience, puts an incredible strain upon individual journalists and the organization as a whole. Um, and so this technology is already helping them cope with that. You know, it's providing the audience data, it's helped them to personalise the website and their newsletters and so on. It's helping them to uh, look for stories in this, you know, tsunami of um, data and information out there. It helps the journalists to try and filter through that. Uh, and it helps them to connect to audiences. 
ChatGPT and other generative AI platforms can already perform tasks that occupy a lot of journalists' time, and this trend will likely accelerate in the future. ChatGPT plugin will be the end of designers. Photorealistic lets you type a simple mid-journey prompt into ChatGPT. AI just wiped out app developers. AI just fired your web developer. Dora AI lets you create a website that's fully editable. I asked Charlie about how this might transform roles within the news industry and what journalists do day to day. Some jobs are going to go, there's no doubt about it. Some jobs are going to go in the same way that, you know, I used to work in a newsroom and if I wanted to get some background information on a topic, I would have to go to an archive library where there'd be little newspaper cuttings packed into an envelope. Of course, one doesn't do that anymore, it's all online, so that archivist has lost her job. Um, but then, of course, you know, uh, uh, many more new jobs are created, and we're now going to see people who are, you know, data editors, algorithm editors, because all of this technology needs to be. You need to have inputs to it. You need to monitor it. You need to make sure uh, that it works, and it will create uh, not just other revenue and savings, but it will create other possibilities uh, to do new forms of content creation. I think in practice, the good, creative, independent, critical uh, journalist who is deeply curious uh, will survive. Curiosity is something that, you know, I think curiosity rather than creativity is something that the machines will struggle with. You know, they respond to prompts and that sure they can learn from that, but that human quality of wanting to know something that they, you don't necessarily know, or you want to know more about something, and you want to investigate something, you want to understand something. That, I think, is, uh, currently at least, impossible to replicate through AI. So at least for the time being, AI isn't interested in what it doesn't know yet. I was curious to find out whether AI will foster more equality in our society, and ask Chris Pisiridis to tell me about what we should expect and how we could prepare. Unfortunately, it will not help us uh, have a more equal society. The biggest uh, change in inequality, worsening, I would say, came in the 80s with computers. Because when computers came in, they obviously helped the work of uh, higher income groups, professional groups. Uh, it took over jobs from um, many kind of workers who were uh, younger, rising in the labor market, being involved in administration, in uh, filing data management. Uh, those jobs uh, were lost and many of those workers that were using that type of, uh, of, of profession or occupation as a stepping stone to something higher, they, they've lost that. You know, the, the middle was hollowed out. Computers didn't do anything for uh, lower income manual work and all that, you know, maybe negative, but more likely neutral. It was something that was happening elsewhere in the labor market. So you have these amazing new machines and they help the work of the high income groups. They hurt the middle income groups and they um, don't do anything for low income groups. Therefore, inequality rises. Now, since then, inequality has uh, stayed more or less where it was before, although a good minimum wage uh, helped. Uh, it will help even more if we go for a living wage rather than a, a minimum wage. Now with AI, there is fear that um, jobs that will be taken over are, are more concentrated at the lower end of the income distribution. The worst case uh, scenario that we see is what's happening in the United States, 
where in recent years almost all gains in uh, productivity at the national level went to the very, very top uh, incomes and everything else has stagnated. That needs very careful planning uh, f from the government and any government. It, it definitely needs uh, state assistance and um, it's not easy for the government to do because of the vested interests that you have. But when you get a government telling you that we cannot compensate uh, our low-income health and education workers for inflation because we cannot afford it, you know it's complete nonsense. I mean, government has the monopoly of taxation. They can tax uh, people any time they want for a good social cause and, and do it. We cannot afford means we don't want to do it. And that's where you get the big increase in inequality. In that sense, I am fearful that inequality will get worse. And it's not sustainable. We need to do something about it. What advice would you give to people who are worried that their job might not be relevant in the future? I would say to them that they should get good training given the digital technologies we have now. I wish I was in their position <laughs> starting now. Learn good uh, skills on how to uh, process and read data because we're going to depend on data. How to communicate it to other people. That's what the jobs of the future will, will require, more communication, both with line managers and subordinates and customers. Uh, learn some basic maths. Should people be looking to change careers? You should be looking for new things all the time. What's more important actually sometimes is to change your role within the career you've chosen. You know, like you decided to become an economist or, whatever, or a medical director. Don't think that you'll need to change the, from an economist to become a pilot or something, you know, or an accountant. Within that profession, change your role according to the, where AI is leading you, what is helping you to do. Don't think that you're going to get a job applying certain skills and then you'll be stuck with those skills and, uh, until you get a pension at age 65 and that's the end. That would be boring. Be optimistic. I think it's, you know, discover the new startup that uh, will make you a millionaire in five years. For Chris, lifelong learning and adapting to change will be essential. I also asked Julia Gentile about attributes that will be important in the job market of the future something that will always remain uh, as an intangible uh, asset and cannot uh, necessarily uh, be replaced by AI is creativity. So thinking about uh, innovation is something that will certainly uh, offer uh, an advantage to companies, to individuals, to workers uh, in any uh, field. Also problem solving and therefore um, how to navigate a complex scenario is something that um, will become very valuable uh, regardless the presence of um, AI. And in addition to this, of course, also emotional intelligence, how to interact with uh, other uh, human workers, not AI uh, workers, and also how, therefore, to work in a group, for example, uh, to cooperate. All these are emotional skills that uh, will become probably even more valuable in the future uh, with the advancement of technology. I think, uh, so the advice would be to become aware of the different AI tools that exist uh, and that are being developed 
Um, and this inevitably will provide uh, these individuals with an advantage, with uh, an edge over competitors. But I think that in a way, demanding um, individuals, in the, in demanding society at large to deal with a problem which, which is so big and so complex uh, is also doomed to fail in the sense that it would be the task of regulators, it would be the task of governments and uh, members of the institutions to reflect on how AI will shape the job market uh, and therefore also um, uh, how to address the demand that uh, the market uh, may have when it comes to workers and, as well, technology. Well, individuals can take steps to prepare themselves for changes caused by the introduction of AI in the workplace. Ultimately, it will be governments and business leaders who will play an important role in shaping the job market of the future. I ask Chris Pisaridis to reflect on what the future holds. The human brain is much more inventive than uh, anything AI can do. I still haven't heard a Mozart piece done by AI or I haven't seen uh, a Madonna of the Rocks painted by AI and I will never see it. We do have the ability as human beings to in invent work that, that is interesting. And we also have the ability to use these uh, wonderful new machines to do the boring stuff that we don't like doing. So. Um, I look forward to having a much more interesting set of jobs, much happier workers, people working, and AI helping us communicate and do better things and tell stories about what ChatGPT said to us or about what we discovered on Google or Amazon or whatever, using the AI, but in a kind of amusing way. Now, of course, you might say, oh, you know, he's so naive. How could we be so old and be so happy and naive at the same time? And I'd say that, okay, that's the best case scenario. And it does need government to play an active role in achieving that. Protecting us from uh, abuse, making sure that we feel secure and we trust the government that if something uh, goes wrong, they're going to in intervene and uh, take care of it. Unfortunately, trust in government is getting lower and lower from what I read. And that's what um, the people who elect into power have to do if they want to uh, serve us. Charlie is also optimistic about the new opportunities that AI will create for us. I asked him if he thinks people will work less and have more time for other things in life. One thing I think I can say for certainty is that AI is not going to lead to some sort of paradise where we all sit around, um, you know, supping nectar and looking at flowers and having a you know robot supported life I think we can rule out that optimistic scenario but I also think um, that the opposite of you know us all being replaced by robots in a bad way isn't going to happen either um, there is so much to do so much to do. If I think of any sector, if I think of right, you know, the healthcare sector or social care sector, uh, we desperately need more care for people. In education, we, we, we need more education, and not just the UK, I'm talking globally. So if there's any way that these tools can uh, enable people's labour to be replaced, then in any kind of healthy society, that saved labour will be redirected uh, to improve our lives and improve our conditions. But generally speaking, we can see with technological advances that what happens is that certain jobs are lost, 
certain jobs are created um, some sectors grow and others are diminished and finally i asked julia if she thinks that ai is coming for our jobs it's not ai that is coming right it's rather how will employers use ai um, to potentially impact their employees i think that's the real question it's not ai in itself it's rather um, companies and the management of companies and, and employers who uh, have uh, uh, leverage in this context and can therefore decide how AI will impact the job market. So again, there is a conflict of values here because one can say that value for money considerations will uh, inevitably, to a certain extent, perhaps give prevalence, favor AI-based solutions uh, in the workplace over um, human presence where AI, for example, can be more efficient and more effective. But then, of course, there is uh, another value that comes to play here, which is that of humanness and, of course, of empathy and also um, how uh, do we want to transform the work environment? Um, for whom do we want to work? With whom we want to work? Which brings us back to the question of humanness and one can say what AI should stand for and how AI should, should be used in our society. So um, these two different approaches inevitably will shape the answer to this question. And I hope that we can come to a world where any use of AI is human-centric and serves humans rather than instead threaten them. Three guest speakers have years of academic expertise behind them, but it seems fitting to also ask AI-driven chatbot, ChatGPT, whether it thinks AI is coming for jobs. Perhaps unsurprisingly, for a model trained on human-generated data, it seems, for now at least, to agree with our experts. It is essential to prepare for the impact of AI on the job market. This includes investing in education and upskilling programs to equip the workforce with the skills needed to thrive in an AI-driven world. Ultimately, the future impact of AI on jobs is uncertain and depends on how society chooses to adapt to and harness this technology responsibly. This episode was produced by me, Mayan Arad, and edited by AI. Just joking. It was edited by a human being called Oliver Johnson. If you'd like to find out more about the research in this episode, head to the show notes. And if you enjoy IQ, please leave us a review. Coming next, LSCIQ asks, what is it like to be criminalized for being gay?